ahead and welcome back to this very special edition of Academy Queens. I am the one, the unholy, the terrifyingly son of Satan. Call me Damien. No, just kidding. Call me Joey. Joey Gentili. And I suck cocks in hell. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And I am not surprised by that one. <laughs> Yay! Horror edition episode! Um, today is just a little bit of fun. There's been a lot of shit going on in the world, and one of our favorite topics in the world in general is horror movies. Why? Because they take us out of reality. And I just kind of want to dive in, Brandon. How about you? Does that just throw throw out who our guests are and just dive into this shit? Sure. I will introduce our first guest. Uh, we have a returning diva. You first he heard him in our 1999 episode of Academy Queens. He has his own horror podcast, Halloweeners, and he's a contributor to the Next Best Picture podcast and website. We have with us today, Para Cody Derricks. I didn't know they had moved hell to Maryland, but uh, all right, fine. It's always been here, sweetheart. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and from the very scary state of Florida, we have film critic, a self-proclaimed horror professor but an actual screenwriting professor the very scary the very horrifying ryan terry yeah thank you so much for inviting me on the show guys i uh, looking forward to talking about my favorite subject and uh one that i'm always sharing with my students uh, in my screenwriting class because virtually every example that i use in my classes from horror films. Even tonight, when I was lecturing on comedy, I had to get my clip from Tucker and Dale versus Evil in there. So I'm uh, always finding ways of showing my students just the versatility of the genre and just why it is so magical and draws us all together. So I'm glad that not only does it draw audiences together, but it's drawn all of us together tonight and uh, looking forward to uh, our discussion. And not only do we have these two amazing gents with us, but we're going to have a special um, side uh, insight with horror writer. She has written for Bloody Disgusting. She is also a part of an upcoming queer horror documentary. And she is a director, BJ Colangelo, uh, will be joining us in the side here in a little bit. So you will hear from her on her take from the uh, queer female perspective of horror. So it's not just a bunch of dudes talking to you guys, trust and believe. So first things first, let's icebreaker here. The horror film that turned you all on to horror movies. Brandon, start us off. I suppose that would be Scream for me. Uh, I saw it when I was maybe six-ish. Uh, it had just come out on cassette and uh, my uncle who's only about like 10 years older than me was babysitting me and he thought it'd be really funny to show me scream and um i ended up not being scared of it i was fascinated by it and loved it and uh after that my parents decided that i didn't need boundaries and so they just let me watch whatever i wanted so i started devouring just about every horror film i could get my hands on and that the sci-fi channel and tnt would play so um yeah started with scream and uh it's been great ever since 
So I grew up in a house that did not let me just watch whatever I wanted. Uh, very, you know, strict adherence to the MPAA's kind of ideas of what's appropriate for a child or not. I remember being very scared of, uh, you know, your evil queens and your wicked witches as a kid. And then around middle school, I caught like half of The Shining on TV and it scared me, but thrilled me at the same time. And I remember like reciting the plot to my friends at school afterwards like that kind of just like immediate obsession with oh what is this kind of feeling of excitement and fear at the same time and ever since then it kind of spiraled out to you know the i catch the heavy hitters like the halloween movies and uh all sorts of different stuff and then yeah i started a little uh horror podcast about two years ago and um just been loving the genre ever since Oh, that's a that's a question I've been asked before, and unfortunately, I don't remember the very first one uh, that I saw that turned me on. However, I, I do know that it was either Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds or Psycho, because both of them were very early for me. Uh, my mom was a big horror fan, so I uh, it was often she and I would sit down and watch horror movies and TV shows together. Uh, she uh, was the first to introduce me to Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone. Uh, so I was uh, very, uh, very Hitchcock-centric uh, as a, a young kid. So this isn't even like middle school. This is elementary school in which I'm uh, watching uh, the uh, you know all, all those that I mentioned. But it, it's either uh, Hitchcock's uh, Birds or Psycho. And uh, Hitch is uh, certainly my favorite director of all time. And I spent a spent a great deal of time talking about Psycho and how influential it was, and and how a man who only directed two horror films would, you know, ostensibly, uh, you know, be the you know the the grandfather of the the modern horror film. And so I I love exploring uh, his um, just how far reaching uh, his influence has been, and uh, the horror films uh, were just uh, almost uh, comforting in a way. I loved how. They forced me, uh, even as a kid, to look at things differently at the time. I didn't you know, understand the psychology behind it, but looking back, that's exactly what was going on. And it was, it was fun. I liked to scream, and you know, I, I, I just uh, think of it as uh, quality time uh, spent with uh, my mom when I was a kid. So mine, what turned me on a little bit was actually horror television um, in the 90s. Goosebumps had a TV show. Yes. And it was fantastic, and I wanted more. Um, so I remember actually my first horror film that I had ever seen, which is, I feel like it's going to take you guys back a little bit because it, no one ever mentions this as their first. It's from 1960 with Barbara Steele called Black Sunday. And it is a witchcraft horror film that has one of the most brutal killings that is barely seen on screen that i've ever witnessed have you guys seen that is that the no. mario the mario baba film it is yeah yeah long time ago yes so it, it that stuck with me and that was my first foray into horror and i was just like i want more and so yeah so goosebumps played a part of it part into it but as did black sunday Oh, so. I, I love that. Goosebumps was certainly influential with me as well as Are You Afraid of the Dark? In fact, I've, uh, I'm using my uh, free trial of Nick Hits to rewatch Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I've done that for the last uh, couple of nights. And so I'm wanting to uh, get through the whole thing. 
before my free trial ends uh, because uh, I've uh, it, it was uh, it's nostalgic, but I also love how many of the stories in Are You Afraid of the Dark really do hold up. Uh, the production value doesn't, the acting doesn't, the directing uh, not so much, uh, but the the stories uh, many of them do hold up, and many of them are still very creepy and unsettling. And so I've been enjoying my rewatch of Are You Afraid of the Dark, which was, uh, you know, uh, gateway, like new horror for me. So no reruns, uh, no films that my mom introduced me to, but like new stuff for me. You know, Are You Afraid of the Dark uh, first, followed by Goosebumps, you know, you know very influential in, in framing, you know, my fondness of the genre. That Are You Afraid of the Dark theme song used to just absolutely scare the shit out of me. I remember immediately changing the channel the second that would come on after whatever I was watching before. Just, no, thank you. It's right up there with the Unsolved Mysteries theme song. Still sends chills down my spine. Do you guys remember Eerie, Eerie, Indiana? Yeah, sure do. I think that show was only on for like a season. It had (laughs) Omri Katz from Hocus Pocus. Yeah. And Danielle Harris from the Halloween movies were in it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I mean, this was like Fox Kids mid-90s era. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever remembers that one. And that was a fantastic little horror show, too. No, I remember Erie, Indiana. And I, I think I, I watched uh, every episode in the one or two seasons that it existed. <laughs> yeah. So now that we have talked about what drew us to horror, why is it do you think that horror is the genre everyone goes back to? And what I mean by that is, why does it stay a sentimental favorite? Is it nostalgia? I mean, what what do you, what do you think about it? I think sure. that, I mean, I'm sure Ryan will have a more academic answer to this, but I really think the idea of scary stories is something that can be traced back to, like, the earliest absolute art forms and types of storytelling, you know, whether it served as a warning or as uh, some sort of lesson. And it really doesn't speak to something kind of just uh, primordial in us. Horror is able to connect with us on our deepest psychosocial levels because it taps into our most primal fears. It also forces us to explore what Freud wrote as the uncanny, which is the uh, area at which you know that which shouldn't remain hidden reveals itself. And because we all have this, um, these uh, shared, uh, you know, because we have these shared primal fears, uh, it's very relatable. Uh, it, uh, it forces us to go to places that uh, will challenge, you know, uh, what we think and how we think. Uh, it's also a genre which is specifically designed to evoke uh, not only an emotional response, it's also specifically engineered to evoke a physiological response as well. And that physiological response can be anything from screaming to laughing to jumping, but we are a participant in it. These films are experiential. They're, they're not all passive. Uh, these are stories which require us to be fully engaged with it. And we were also feeding off of the energy from the rest of the audience. Uh, these are films which are best experienced in a group setting, uh, in a theater, on the big screen, you know, w- with the sound, because we all... Uh, are feeding off of uh, the, this collective energy in the room, and it is, uh, you know, t- taking us to places uh, that we would otherwise be terrified to go. Uh, but because uh, we have this attraction to that which would otherwise repulse us, uh, which is uh, written by Carol Clover, 
you know, we are naturally drawn to it because at our core, we are masochistic creatures. And so we enjoy uh, subjecting ourselves uh, to these images on the screen. And at the end of the day, it uh, leaves us, it, 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 it impresses upon us uh, the importance of how to uh, deal uh, with uh, with these fears and how to deal with them and to, and for them not to be something to be afraid of. It's something that we can talk about, but uh, the long and short of it is these films are experiential. Yeah, I agree. Uh, something else that I really like about horror sort of like science fiction or even Westerns or really any genre is you're able to explore very complex themes and concepts symbolically in a way um i'm not sure symbolically is the right word but you can it's like a, a twilight zone episode or a star trek episode where it's about something on the surface but it's really about something else on a much more meta metaphorical uh level and like ryan was saying it's um a genre that demands your entire body when you're watching it like a lot of science fiction it can be very brainy it's like very uh cerebral in a way whereas um horror is the more visceral genre so i think ryan is really accurate here or he's really onto something when he says that uh horror is just uh something that really taps into the human condition and uh we respond to it in a way unlike any other genre yeah i've always said like uh horror i feel lets people you know people all we all have a dark side and the thing is, is that we're taught at a very young age what happens if we uh, tap into that dark side. I mean, whether it is death or whether it is the idea of punishment in the form of prison, we all know what would happen if we were to go up to someone and just murder them. Now, with that said, I think none of us would commit murder unless it was a basic instinct of survival. I think that's the only time that's really socially acceptable for murder but I feel like horror films let us tap into that dark side and let our subconscious play. I mean, I think there's the most natural response to life is being scared. Um, whether it's you moving to across the country or you're starting a new relationship or, I mean, even having sex for the first time can be scary. So I think horror taps into the most natural um, feeling we have as humans and it lets us play in a way that we cannot play in reality. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, uh, I, I really like what you're saying there and is very much why this was, uh, one of the earliest genres, uh, that we have out there. And, uh, one of the, uh, you know, the most fun ones to play around with. It's also from a business perspective, it is the most bankable and, uh, Invisible Man is a great example of, uh, you know, a you know, quote unquote, you know, lower budget uh, horror film that just makes bank. And so I and it's because it's popular. The, you know, we just collectively enjoy them, uh, you know, like with comedy is collectively enjoyed. But, you know, horror is even more so. I think horror has you know, far more dedicated fans of the genre uh, than comedy does specifically. 
Uh, I like your analogy, though, about uh, it uh, needing to, like, it exercises our fears. And in no better, it, I think in no better uh, horror film, it's as truly explored than in Wes Craven's New Nightmare, in which, in which uh, you know, Freddy leaves the screen because there's no more stories being written about him. There's no more movies about him. So the evil in the world has to go somewhere. And if we don't give the evil in the world someplace to go, it's going to come into our real lives. And so these films are very cathartic and, and it's important for us to uh, exercise those and to, I mean, not to be, you know, uh, cliche or sound like, like you know, a Disney movie, you know, we need to face our fears. And so I, I really like your analogy there. I think you're also, um, you're very correct when you say that horror is the most bankable genre because it's never really gone away. Like Westerns had their era and then sort of trickled off sci-fi had its era and sort of trickled off and both have sort of come and gone over the years but horror never really has it's taken different forms it's evolved so to speak but it's never fallen off like other genres have so i think you're pretty accurate when you say it's the most bankable yeah i mean i would also agree with that now as we all know we have what turned us on to horror we just talked about that why horror but one of the things that horrors always face, and if you look at, you know, despite the love of horror, despite the bankability of horror, it's always faced this idea of misogyny, right? So you go back to Siskel and Ebert reviews of things like Friday the 13th, and they're always talking about how these women are just there to get butchered. And it never talked about the status of what became the final girl. You know, we saw it in Olivia Hussey in Black Christmas. It became a thing with, for real with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. Then, of course, you had films like with Ashley Lawrence and Hellraiser, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think horror has gotten such a bad rep for misogyny when it is literally the strongest genre to showcase the power of the woman? Eh, it's a straw man argument, or it's an easy argument to make. I mean, it, it, it's one that you can, uh, for the casual observer, that's all you see, but a casual observer is not taking the time to explore more deeply. And so I, I think it I think it's a it's a cheap shot. And so it is taking something out of context and just painting an entire, you know, uh, you're writing an entire argument around it because you're right. This genre has been the most progressive out of all of them and has always been far more truthful than any straight drama. And we we have, you know, characters which are only now really seeing significant screen time in the last few years. These characters have been seeing significant screen time since the dawn of the genre. And especially, you know, uh, during uh, the slasher era in, in which we get our final girl. And they're, they're such strong characters. And they are, you know, uh, they embody, you know, you know, what we're looking for uh, in, in a hero. And so we're just subverting the expectations of a typical hero, uh, but we're still playing around with that same idea. And I think it's, it's, it's an easy argument. And it's one that, you know, just out of context, you could make. And so because, uh, you know, those who are going to paint it as a, you know, as a, you know, cheap, schlocky, misogynistic stories aren't going to, they're clearly not taking the time to watch how strong these characters are and how much they can teach us and how influential they have consistently been over the decades. 
Uh, I'm kind of, I'm of a mixed opinion and I'm no expert in this. So I don't want to say too much because I don't have a fully formed opinion about it per se. Um, I think it does kind of come from a combination of a lot of the final girls, or at least the stereotype of whether true or not is they are the ones in the movie who kind of, you know, whether truthfully or not have purity in a way, you know, in the way that like society paints purity, whether it's virginity or uh, saying no to like drinking. So I think the idea of a final girl as like a hero, yes, is obviously, you know, we see that uh, throughout history, but a lot of times there is kind of the thing where it's like, well, she's the one that gets to live because she deserves it in a way. I, again, don't think that's a fully formed argument, but I do think that's where that's probably coming from. I'm sure there are horror films, particularly slasher films, that are probably more guilty of it than others. There probably are some films that veer a little bit too much into exploitation and go into that misogynistic area. But um, I, when I hear arguments that horror and slasher films are just blanket misogynistic, it reminds me of those school boards and PTAs that ban books from schools when they've never actually read them themselves. Like they ban books for using certain words or having certain themes when the whole point of the book is to make a statement about those themes. Um, that's kind of what it reminds me of. People who make arguments about things that they don't really understand and they're not really taking the time to really delve into and examine from different points of view. It's, um, it's a very basic argument that usually falls flat in the end. I almost wonder with this whole idea of misogyny in horror, if it isn't kind of the response to giving women strong parts when they were always just kind of muzzled by the men. I mean, if you look at like the studio system in Hollywood, yeah, you've had leading female parts and you had some that were good. For example, Mildred Pierce was a female-led strong film. But you, you know, if you really go into the studio system and then the breakdown of the studio system when, when, when quote unquote new wave horror started coming in with things like Alice Sweet Alice and um, uh, what's the one? Don't look now. Was that the Donald Sutherland one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's got looking... one of the greatest uh, jump scares, which it doesn't even jump right at at you. It happens so. Just so slowly, as uh, our character in red uh, turns at the very end, and it's a, a great use of a jump scare that works incredibly well. And one of the creepiest, uh, you know, moments and uh, near endings, you know, uh, in the horror genre. Uh, Don't look now. It's it's one that I wish more people would take time to watch. Well, hold on to that because that's actually our next next topic is jump scares. <laughs> so okay. you, you got a little ahead of me there, but I totally agree with you. So, like, if you if you think about how women were, were like really repressed in films, I think the idea of horror finally given given them their like outing almost felt like well, this is an argument we can have, and it could be backlash, and it was in a way it almost feels like a way to kind of repress women back into those side roles. I don't know, that's just me though. Like, I I never understood how you had such strong characters. I mean, I mean, shit. Think of the Friday the Thirteenth films. In the first four. You had only women surviving, and then with part five, you started having the boyfriend survive. So it wasn't even till like halfway through the series that the men of Friday the Thirteenth started surviving in these films, and yet all these films are still getting just bashed about. They're just not good representations of women. All right, so show me where a good representation of, of women is. Is it in a John Wayne film? Because I can guarantee the fuck it's not. You know what I mean? 
Like it almost yeah. just felt like it's, it almost... it's like uh, tricky though because I don't know if surviving or not is necessarily the like calling card of a well written character. But in Friday the Thirteenth, nobody's well written, so <laughs> it doesn't really that, even matter. That is true. That is true. Now <laughs> to go into jump scares in a movie. You have tension scares. You have jump scares. Both, I think, handle really can be handled really, really well and really, really sloppy. With that said, I think one of the greatest jump scares in all of film is in The Exorcist Three. Oh with, yeah, in the opening. No, the nurse. The nurse, yeah. The the nurse that comes out of the door. I remember it's there every time. Still scares the shit out of me. Great tension scare, I think, is the entire film of Blair Witch Project. It's one of my favorite horror films of all time because it's the most simplistic idea. Guys, discuss. Jump, tension, what works for you? So I am a fan of jump scares when used appropriately. I cannot stand when I call them like what they're called like false scares in a way where it's like a bird flying into a window or a friend walking around the corner extra fast. Those are not rooted in any sort of actual storytelling horror. They're really just preying on an actual instinctual response that you'll have to a thing appearing quickly and the and the loud noise which is you know like caveman brain that's not creative but when i think of something like my favorite jump scare which is uh in mulholland drive where <laughs> the um, yes. yeah the, the yeah, homeless that's... person behind the dumpster that's yeah. absolutely rooted in both tension and jump because it is building to that and without the lead up of the scene before it the jump scare doesn't work so that's when i think it's used most effectively especially in tandem with tension you know who that is right uh, that's uh, what's your face from Princess Diaries, right? What's up? She's in Princess Diaries. No, that's Lee Grant from Shampoo. Wait, what? That was not. I swear to God, Lee Grant is the homeless person who, who jumps out. No, it's not. Hold on, hold on. S- swear. I'm I'm googling. <laughs> Google away. Oh, okay. uh, while we're uh... oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say while Cody's doing that. Uh, for some reason, the jump scare that, like, pops into my head is, like, the first example that I think of is um, in Jaws when Roy Scheider's uh, kind of mindlessly throwing the, the chum into the water and the shark pops up and nearly grabs his arm and then goes back down. You guys know the scene that I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I... Cody's Jaws... right, by the way. Okay. Go, Cody. What was that? Uh, Sorry, a little louder? Cody is right, by the way. Damn. <laughs> I would love this Lee Grant, though. <laughs> we love Lee Grant here. But, uh, ahead, yeah, Jaws is another one of those horror movies that I saw really young. And uh, I remember that one being quite effective on me. It might be like, I don't know, it might have been my first jump scare that I really like, recognized as a jump scare. I'm not sure. Well, that's also the buildup of an entire movie of people saying how scary the shark is and you haven't really seen it in full yet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, an hour and a half into the movie, you finally see it, and it's just an amazing payoff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I liken the horror jump scare to the gag or joke or other comedic element in a comedy. If your comedy is gag-driven, it's not going to be rewatchable. Uh, you'll laugh for, you know, 15 minutes maybe, and then the laughter is going to die off. Uh, because it's not driven from the character conflict. And so that is, I liken jumps, effective jump scares to that. Just like you don't want to, just like a well-written comedy should not be gag-driven, but should still be character and conflict-driven, the uh, horror film uh, should employ the use of the jump scare uh, strategically in a way that we still have a setup 
and payoff. So just like in comedy, you go by the rule of thirds. You have the setup, you establish a pattern, and then you come at it with a twist. And so you're going to do the, the same thing with a jump scare. You're going to set it up, you're going to establish a pattern of it not happening, and then that's when the jump scare comes because you've earned it, it pays off, and it's connected uh, with the, it's uh, derived out of the character conflict. So that not only makes it rewatchable, but it also makes it a device which is still going to move the story forward in both plot and character. That, and you want your audience to jump. You want them to gasp. And so it's that device which also brings the audience uh, into the film so they can have that full experience. Yeah, the comparison with comedy is so apt because there are two genres that if you are not having a physical reaction, you're not making a successful film in that genre if you're not laughing or jumping. Um, if I mention the lawnmower in the movie Sinister, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. yes. That's a very effective one for me. I think I've seen Sinister maybe three times, and that one always gets me to like shift in my seat a little bit. So I don't know if you guys have any uh, feelings on that particular jump scare, but uh, it's one that I find particularly effective. That one definitely fucks with me, for sure. For sure. Now, there, it's funny, too. I remember how I was going to say this. I I love remembering scares as, like, a kid, but revisiting it as an adult. Like, like for example, Sinister is a great one. I saw it when it came out in theaters. I was in the theater. It scared the shit out of me. It was a great theater experience. You know, it still gets me. Do you guys remember Darkness Falls? Oh, yeah, yeah the Tooth uh, Fairy. I love it. I watched that yes. at a middle school sleepover, which is the only time you should watch that movie. <laughs> yes, great as a kid. Revisited that as an adult. Stupid as shit. Not so much, yeah. <laughs> okay, I've only seen it. I've only seen it the one time, so I better just live with uh, live with that experience and not ruin it with a rewatch. Yeah, no, same. honestly, yeah, live with that experience because revisited that like two years ago. I was like with my friends who had never seen it. I was like, this guys, this is scary as shit. We're gonna watch this. And this was like, oh, this is bad. Like, this is bad. But I do remember it having Emma Caulfield from Buffy, so I was like all about it as a kid. So um, next topic, going right into this, the franchise horror, Friday the 13th. Hellraiser, Night on Elm Street, Halloween. What is it about the same boogeyman that we all just go back to over and over again? Is it how creative the kills are going to be? Because by maybe the third one in, we're not really as scared anymore. I mean, what 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 brings us back to our familiar friends? Is it that it is almost a comfort? Like we know this person. I think we we look to these franchises, uh, you know. For a sense of comfort, as irony would have it, uh, because they are uh, they're kind of, they're a part of our lives. Uh, they uh, they've grown up with us. Uh, we return to these franchises in very much the same way that we, uh, uh, you know, as a society, at least for a long time, and many, including myself, still love watching the classical, uh, classically written American sitcom. We love these characters coming into our living rooms. I, I rewatch these franchises in, in very much the same way that I rewatch the Golden Girls or the Nanny or, you know, a half a dozen other shows over and over and over and over again because I love that fact that they that it feels as if that they are a part of my life. I love inviting them into my living room, you know, every single week. Uh, you know, and so that's that's how we treat these franchises. They they're a part of pop culture. And we love uh, it, 
we love watching our favorite characters on screen, you know, through, you know, new adventures that, that are still similar. We, we And we like how our character doesn't really change all that much. It's the same reason why, you know, uh, James Bond can't change too much. He ceases to be James Bond. It's why sitcom characters can't change too much because they then they cease being the character and therefore the comedy is not going to work anymore so we so even though by and large you want characters to demonstrate significant change over their art there are exceptions and these horror franchises are one of those and i find that we typically identify with a, a particular uh, horror icon i know in uh, uh, my group of friends uh, here uh, each of us uh, has an icon yeah, I'm Freddie. My friend Danny is a Jason girl. Uh, my friend Brittany loves Michael. My friend Derek, uh, he loves Leatherface. And so the, these are, you know, our, uh, our our icons, and we uh, are just drawn to them because of you know something they do. Uh, for for me, it's Freddie and his charisma and his uh, one liners and and you know the fact that you know he is i find to be the most terrifying because he uh because he attacks you when you're most vulnerable which is in your sleep in your mind and it's the uh it's uh, the fact it's having to it's it we formed a relationship over the course of two or three movies and we enjoy going back and revisiting that relationship because we can have fun with it when i saw halloween uh the other year I, you know, I, I can't even, you know, capture in words the energy of the auditorium uh, on that Thursday night when we're uh, getting to go back to Haddonfield and uh, get to, uh, once again, we get to see Michael on the big screen because Michael is such a big part of our lives growing up, such a big part of pop culture. And, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, Americana and, you know, a, a classical sense, you know, being, you know, you know, perhaps, you know, baseball and apple pies. Well, my Americana you know, uh, are these uh, horror films, are these horror characters? Because, you know, they're they're very much, uh, you know, uh, an American creation of sorts, at least the American horror film anyway, which is my area of expertise. I don't comment on uh, Asian horror because that's not my area. But in terms of American horror film, you know, the, they are part of our lives. And so we want for them to continue to be a part of our lives. Speaking to that sense of comfort, there's also comfort to be found in like repetitive formula. I mean, when you watch a Friday the 13th movie, you know there's going to be um, an hour of, like, boring over sex teens and then a fun finale. It's going to happen every single time. And in Halloween, there's always going to be incredible music, really creative kills. Same with Saw. It's just a level of comfort in a weird kind of perverse way. Growing up, I was always more drawn to the villains with more personality. Um, I like Freddy was sort of my go-to when I was a kid, uh, sort of like Ryan was saying, I really liked his humor, which came like later on with the sequels. Um, I wasn't so big into Jason, Michael, Leatherface and those guys. I enjoyed those movies. Um, they're fun escapism. Uh, the formula is very, you know, fun to see how it stays and strays over the films. But um, I was just I was more into the liveliness of a character like Freddy growing up. Um, but now I would probably say that the Child's Play franchise is probably my favorite. I kind of lean a little more toward Chucky these days. Maybe that's because I'm such a fan of Don Mancini and how he has sort of molded this series like from the very beginning up till now. He's written every single one. And uh, I think it's the, this, the franchise that evolves the most. It's taken maybe more right turns in its journey than most other 
horror franchises. So I think I admire it from that perspective. But um, I think I'm still just more drawn to the the killers with a little bit more zest to them, like Chucky and Freddy. Yeah, I agree. I think I think in the long run, it, it's kind of like we all have that really weird cousin that we know is a weirdo, but <laughs> somehow we still have fun with at the at the you know the get-togethers. I think that's what these franchises do. So it kind of leads me into my next question or my next or the next topic here remakes love them or hate them but we have a lot of them when do you think a remake works and when do you think it doesn't and it's unnecessary hey everyone this is bj colangelo and i am a filmmaker and a film theorist and i'm here on the academy queens to talk about two different pieces today that i have a whole lot of opinions on the first one let's start with the more recent one uh let's talk about the 2019 remake of black christmas I know that even uttering the name already is going to ruffle some feathers from diehard horror fans that think that it's a terrible piece of ham-fisted social justice feminist garbage. And that's fine. People are entitled to their opinions. And they're also entitled to tell on themselves and admit that they don't understand nuance, nor do they understand that not every movie is meant for them. One of the big criticisms that I kept seeing over and over again was people saying that, you know, they're ruining Black Christmas by making it feminist. And the question that I have for those people is, what movie did you watch 20, 30 years ago? Black Christmas has always been a slasher film, yes, but a feminist film as well. Those two things are not, are not mutually exclusive. And it's very interesting to me to see how many people are so aghast at the Black Christmas of 2019 being so heavily leaning towards, you know, the the feminist angle when that's exactly what Bob Clark did with Black Christmas. I mean, the entire side story is about whether or not a woman is allowed to have autonomy of her own body and seek an abortion, whether or not she has to take into account what her boyfriend wants, even though it's her body, that's extremely feminist. And it was really unheard of at the time to have a plot like that exist in a movie, let alone a horror film. So when Black Christmas 2019 comes out, it's a completely different film. It has as much to do with the original Black Christmas as the remake, the first remake does, which is just, you know, a whole lot of camp fun. And I think that what's so interesting about these films is that all three of them are all wildly different, but they're all focusing on the idea of working together as a as a sisterhood, and it's one that's by choice, not by blood. And that's really something that I don't think we see a lot of in horror. There's plenty of familial bonds, but not a lot of friendship bonds that are that are really true in that regard. And I think that the 2019 Black Christmas is exactly the film that, you know, maybe a 15 or a 16 year old girl needs. There's a reason that it's PG-13. This is a movie that isn't meant for the people who grew up on the original Black Christmas. And guess what? That's totally okay. The amount of people that think that a movie somehow loses its power once it's remade, those are people that just cannot allow themselves to expand their perspective of art. And I think the Black Christmas of 2019 was an incredibly successful 
project and one that, you know, while meant for a younger audience, is one that's necessary. We still live in a world where every single day women are not believed when they're trying to say that things are that things are really bad for them. Um, people fail to recognize the systemic uh, institutions that are in place that continue to push, uh, you know, cis white straight men forward and leave everybody in the dust. And I'm glad that this movie exists because it's one that calls it out. Well, an example, a recent example of a remake that works is The Invisible Man. It works on every single level. It has the soul of the original, yet it's uh, in, interpreted for a modern audience. And uh, we're talking about modern issues. But at the end of the day, you know, it uh, just is completely inspired by the original and uh, one that uh, uh, does not work and, and is widely regarded as probably, you know, uh, among the worst, if not the worst, you know, remake ever made uh, is 2010's A Nightmare on Elm Street because it literally just shit on everything that we love about the original and the original movies. And it, it just took everything, took everything away from it. And it turned it into something completely different. Yeah, you've got this same character, but he's not really the same character. He 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 may look kind of the same, but he's not the same at all. Not 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 by a long shot. And it just, it just completely it, it uh, just deconstructed everything and then remade something that we we hardly recognize. And so, I mean, those are my examples uh, of one that works incredibly well and one that should be embarrassed that you can still access it on streaming services. Yeah, I think the funny thing is that the closer a movie is to the original that it's trying to copy, usually the less successful it is, especially in horror. And I think that kind of boils down to the idea of if you don't have a good new thing to explore or to say while co-opting either the name or the look or a character in the movie you're remaking, then the purpose of making the movie is nothing more than a cash grab, essentially, because you don't have any reason for making it other than we're just going to do it again. Yeah, I, I really think the uh, the 2010 remakes of the 80s horror movies and then the 2000s remakes of a lot of Asian cinema is really examples of kind of watered down yet very close to the original in a way that just doesn't feel quite right. And then I look at something like Suspiria from 2018, which is an absolute reinvention of the original movie. So much that you can probably name it something completely different and nobody would even notice. And that, I think, is an idea uh, or, or an example of the more virtuous reasons for making a remake in a way. Because it's something new to say, a new vision, a new way of doing it. Mm -hmm. I don't um, automatically hate remakes. Um, I think they're successful when they manage to recontextualize the movie. If they can lift a script that worked or didn't work in a past era and reapply it to the modern times or do a completely different time, just recontextualize it so that it works in a new set of parameters. I think those films tend to be the ones that are the most successful. So um, people who just say that all remakes are bad, I think uh, need to watch a few more movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that everyone's saying here on many a parts. You know, I think of remakes and I think of like, if you're going to remake something, make it fun. I think one of the worst crimes a horror movie, whether it's an original or a remake, can uh, do to itself is it, it's, just, it's just boring. 
like the grudge that came out in January was just boring, like awful. And I think of hey, I is as awful as it was. I still loved watching Lynn Shay be Lynn Shay because that woman is amazing. And even in the shittiest horror movies, she just she she saves it for me. And I can at least have enjoyed watching her go batshit crazy because I'll, I'll watch anything that she's in because she's just consistently giving it her all because she just loves this genre. Which is great. You know, I love a good horror actress and we'll get to scream. You keep jumping ahead of me. We will get, <laughs> I'm we'll not flamboyant. It's okay. It's okay. Well, you know, um, another set of something where I don't think a horror movie remake works, something like One Miss Call. Like, it's just boring. Again, it doesn't work. And then you think of, like, really, really fun horror remakes. Like, I think my Bloody Valentine 3D is a great thrill ride that was one of the, my best movie theater experiences ever. Like, it was at the height of the brand new 3D comeback. You know, Sorority Row is a fun remake. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is a fun remake. And then you just have remakes that just think they're trying to invent something new to where they just turn out so bad, like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Real bad. Not great. Um, so I just think it, it really can work for certain things and can work for or not work for others. Now, here, here's a quote-unquote controversial piece that I'm interested to get you guys' take on. When it comes to horror, we're going to horror remakes, right? Rob Zombie's Halloween, not the first one, part two. Here's why I think this is the better of the two Halloween remakes, and here's why. Rob Zombie has a shtick. We've seen it numerous times before. It's nothing new. However, one thing he was able to do with H2 was actually give... Okay, this is why I think it's funny. So I didn't like the new Halloween at all, the 2018 remake, or version I thought was real just bad. And Jamie Lee Curtis went on a trauma tour of the States uh, promoting this thing. And I think what it failed to do is what Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 did the best was showing real-life trauma to such a horrific event. I think what gets shit on a lot is Scout Taylor Compton's acting as Laurie, which... Honestly, I can see it, but Halloween 2, as a fan, not only pulled at our heartstrings when they killed off Daniel Harris and they gave us, like, the flashback scene, but I think it was really effective in showing real-life trauma to a real possible scenario that could happen to anyone. What are your thoughts? Well, see, I don't like either of the Rob Zombie films. I find them trite. I find them lazy. I find them derivative of his shtick. I uh, absolutely love 2018's Halloween, easily made my top 10 films of the year, and it, it delivered everything that I wanted to see uh, in, a, in Halloween. But I, uh, it's, uh, it, it's right up there. It's in my top three in the Halloween franchise, my, my first one being the original. And uh, this is, it's number two or number three. I have a hard time, but I love H2O. And I think uh, until 2018 came out, H2O was the best Halloween uh, installment after the after the OG, and it because uh, it, it I felt like this is fully connected to the original. It uh, embodies the original. I love how we have mother and daughter scream queens on screen, which is very poetic. And we can talk about uh, this very special appearance uh, in our in our next topic. 
And uh, so I, I, I loved uh, 2018. Like uh, Halloween Kills, my most anticipated film this year. Um, after we get on the uh, the other side of a uh, nothing new coming to theaters. Uh, but uh, once we get back up and running again, uh, it's still going to be my most anticipated film of the year because I, I just I love what David Gordon Green has done with this franchise. And uh, in my defense, you know, in, in my defense, though, in the Holly movies, I don't particularly like Rob Zombie's films in general. I do like House of a Thousand Corpses and the ho- and the house at HHN last year was fantastic. The actor playing uh Captain Spaulding, I uh, felt like uh, Sid Haig was standing there, and and I hope that you know Sid had a chance to meet the actor uh, portraying him uh, before uh, he passed away. Um, but uh, outside of House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, just not you know I don't not a Rob Zombie fan, so that's uh, it certainly plays into my not caring for uh, his take on the Halloween movies. I'm generally not much of a zombie fan either um he's one of those directors where i feel like every film of his that i've watched i felt like i've already seen it before um i do i haven't seen his halloween films in many years but i remember finding the second one more interesting for whatever that's worth i think it he goes into some more emotional places with it whereas the first one i thought was just balls to the wall without much substance Whereas the second one, he's actually trying to explore something. Um, it's been a little too long to really go into it in detail, but I do recall being more fascinated with his second Halloween effort. The thing about the zombie Halloween, at least the first one, which I, I like a little more than the second one, is that the thing that works the best for me is the thing that I didn't think I wanted to see, which is the uh, expansion of Michael as a child in the mental Institute and just seeing Dr. Loomis is uh, working with him for a long time, because the only thing about the original that I never quite bought, which is to me at like 10 out of 10, otherwise incredible movie is Dr. Loomis's undying fear of Michael. Cause we don't really have evidence to see that besides what we see after the fact. So I like that exploration in the original zombie. The interesting thing about the zombie one is that the most interesting part of the original, which is the entire last half hour is completely just an absolute wash it's so boring <laughs> to me it's just nothing specific about it or really interesting um except seeing daniel harris again which is always fun well speaking of daniel harris daniel harris jamie lee curtis nev campbell janet lee sarah michelle geller crystal Lowe, linnea quigley etc 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 we love our we love ourselves a scream queen but if you had to pick your ultimate scream queen who's it going to be for me, it's probably Sydney Prescott. Um, maybe it's because Scream was so pivotal to me, but I like how her character evolves over the course of those movies and how she goes from just being, you know, this average high school girl to being this absolute warrior and advocate for other victims. Um, I think Sydney Prescott has a really cool arc over the course of that franchise. So I'd probably pick her. I'm pretty basic, and I probably would say um, Laurie in Halloween. I mean, it's just again, like one of it's one of the pivotal moments in horror for me. But in terms of actual literal scream, uh, the best scream I can think of that I ever saw in a movie was just last year in Ready or Not. Uh, Samara Weaving has an incredible <laughs> scream. Seriously, she made yes. my top, she made my best actress ballot just for that last year, and so she really is somebody that I 
hope can uh, blaze new trails in the genre in terms of that. Yeah, I, I think I'm also going to go with uh, Sydney Prescott for Scream Queen. Uh, she's not my favorite final girl, but she is my my favorite Scream Queen for uh, very much the same reasons. And uh, I'm 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 cautiously optimistic for this Scream Five, uh, and I'm being very generous with that optimism because I have. Uh, Really hoping that uh, it doesn't uh, ruin uh, it doesn't ruin what we've come to love about the Scream franchise, and of course we don't know really anything about it at this point, so uh, it's hard. I don't want to I don't want to set myself up uh, for uh, uh, for disappointment. Uh, so uh, as far as the city Prescott that we know now, uh, she's uh, also my pick for favorite Scream Queen. I think if any scream ruined that, it was Scream Four. But that's just me. I um, love. We've had this argument though. I know so that's I why I brought it up. That's why I brought scream it up. Four. Uh, um, I'm 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 being I'm you know I gotta say Danielle Harris. Danielle is. I mean, if you remember back to our original, um, well, actually, Brandon, you weren't on that, but I'm, you listened to it. Um, the original roundtable we did. It was the whole reason of Danielle Harris and Halloween Five that I wanted to like become an actor and, and get into entertainment because I was you know I mentioned like I remember watching the fifth one I, I think that's why it's also my favorite Halloween movie is the fifth one is because I was like oh she's a kid I'm a kid I could do this she's doing it you know what I mean so it's definitely like a, a love for what she brought as Jamie and you know I'll always carry it with me I always I always think that Daniel Harris got the shit end of the Halloween stick when it comes to her characters so but you know, still love her, still still watch her, and she's one of the funniest people I've ever interviewed in my life. If you ever get the chance to talk to Danielle Harris, that girl swears like a sailor, and it's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm glad you're um, also an apostle for Halloween Five. I think that movie fucking rules. It's definitely it's my second so favorite besides the original. It's great, and I it, love it, it, it weirdly is great with the character writing, which is something that horror movies, even the good ones, aren't good at. So good on that movie. Well, Tina gets so much shit, and she's one of the best girls. I in love the Tina. Series. Absolutely love Tina. Yeah. Is Ryan okay? Is he alive right now? <laughs> yes. I'm still. <laughs> I I'm still recovering from uh from your slander of the uh late great Wes Craven's you know fi- uh, final film that he uh so blessed us with uh, before his untimely departure. I, for the record, <laughs> I always have, I, it's funny, I always, like, get these weird auditions for things his friends are, like, work for casting directors, but I actually auditioned for Scream 4 for Wes for the Robbie character played by Eric Knudsen. Um, that is my claim to fame to the Scream franchise, is <laughs> being able to audition for that. So, Oh, oh sweet. Hey, that, that, that had to have been an incredible experience. That was my second film audition I ever had. It was pretty insane. Um... LGBT representation in horror. Uh, Another film that I want to talk about is Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Sleepaway Camp is also notoriously problematic. And I I need to, like, let it be known that I'm a a cisgender queer woman, and I do have a uh, trans woman who I'm going to be marrying later this year, and this is a movie that we both bonded together over our mutual love for having 
And whenever we tell people that we love sleepaway camp, um, a lot of our more, I guess, politically charged friends always kind of stick their nose up at us. And it's like, how can you watch that trash? It's so problematic. It's so offensive. And while, yes, it's offensive if you look at it as trying to believe that this film is supposed to be one that is being representative of the trans experience, and it's not. That's not what this film is. This film is not trying to say that anybody who is trans is a monster. This is a movie that's saying if you force somebody to live in a gender that is not theirs, that you're going to harm them and you're going to change the way that their brain works and you're going to make them not be the best version of themselves. And that's exactly what's happening here with Angela slash Peter as the killer. Now, when you move forward into the canon of Sleepaway Camp where Angela has um, fully transitioned, it's also still questionable because in Sleepaway Camp 2, she talks about how she was in the mental institution. It was something that was forced upon her. So now, even still, you're not having this authentic trans experience. So trying to say that, you know, Angela is a problematic trans killer is incorrect because Angela is not transgender. She's somebody who was forced to transition and forced to live in a gender that is not her own. And she's, you know, by, by part two and part three, she's just trying to like make the best of her situation. Um, but she's been permanently damaged from all of the trauma that she's experienced throughout her life. So if anything, I think she's an incredibly sympathetic character. And while I don't believe that, you know, all trans people who are experiencing gender dysphoria are about to like go out and mass murder people, they're definitely not feeling their best selves. And that's what horror has always been, is that it's been an exaggeration of the pain that other people are feel feeling and the fears that we have. So I think that Sleepaway Camp in that right is doing something kind of groundbreaking, not to mention that, you know, all of this could have been avoided had we offered gay rights for for couples at the time because we find out that Angela and Peter's father is gay and in a relationship with a man and when their father dies uh, Peter doesn't end up with you know dad's partner Peter ends up with crazy aunt Martha because you know in the eyes of a court that's probably better for the child but what does aunt Martha do forces Peter to live and dress like a little girl and is renamed Angela and all of that could have been avoided had Peter been allowed to go with his dad's lover and then you know what maybe we wouldn't have any of this gender fuckery we wouldn't be having this conversation at all in the first place so all it takes is doing a little bit more of a deep dive onto the films that you think that you understand and start looking at those little nuanced pieces and then you'll finally see what the story is really trying to say lgbt representation in horror when did you first notice it and do you think there needs to be more of it I actually wrote an entire article on this last year after seeing the French 80s set queer horror film Knife Plus Heart, which I, oh, can, I lo- cannot I recommend more. So good. So hot. So scary. Very, really big recommendation. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, queer film, queer characters in horror is that there weirdly was better representation before um, like Stonewall in a way, because back then there would be queer coded villains, which, you know, it's not helping the cause at all, <laughs> you know, especially in Hitchcock. There's a ton of um, like villains that are seemingly, you know, either really close to their mothers or close to the other heroines of their woman. And then after that, they kind of stopped being characters in at least mainstream horror movies, which is 
a kind of weird reversal of like uh, of film equity in a way. I don't really know exactly why that happened, but maybe it speaks to something like if we can't cast them as villains, then they're not worth casting at all. But I, I, I don't know. It's a little disheartening. Uh, I'm not sure what my first, um, when I first noticed in uh, queer content and horror films, but uh, since you mentioned Hitchcock, I remember watching Rope in middle school and thinking, oh, those two are so fucking. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then, you know, there's, of course, the the iconic scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and all sorts of uh, queer content. I'm not sure what the first one was, but I remember watching those movies in like my middle school years and recognizing what was probably happening but was not being, you know, obviously said. Do you want to know what's weird? Like, I had seen Sleepaway Camp. I had seen Fatal Games at a young age. I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street. And, of course, we had the hella gay Friday the 13th 7. But I didn't realize a gay character in a horror film until Venom. Do you remember that movie from 2005 with Megan Good? And it's and Agnes Bruckner. And it takes place in the backwoods of New Orleans. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. It's like the, the 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 trucker guy gets killed, and then like magic spells bring him back, and he's this demon. There was a character there who was a total like mid two thousand scene twink, and I remember being like, oh, "Of course they kill the gay kid!" Like that was the first time I remember seeing a, for me, recognizing a gay character on in in these films. Was it a character, though, that was actually canonically gay? Like, was it in the context of the movie? I've never seen that movie. Yeah, so he was he was a gay character in the film. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this movie has, like, an early Bijou Phillips in it, and it's a, it's actually, like, a pretty solid slasher in the, in the, in, and I mean, what I mean by solid is that, it, like, it does what it needs to do. It came out around the same time as that uh, reversed horror film, Cry Wolf. Do you guys remember that one? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Came out at the same time at that one. They both bombed at the box office. So, but yeah, that was the first time I remember. Now, regarding needing more of it, I mean, I just love having a diverse roster of characters anyway. So I'm like, yeah, bring, bring, bring more gay characters, bring more lesbian characters, bring more bi, like, do it all. Give me all of it. Um, but yeah, I think that was the first time for me when I actually recognized that on, on, on camera. So, um, with that said, because we're almost, Guys, I can't believe we're already almost over an hour into this. Oh, time flies when you're having fun. Um, let's see, where are we at on that? Ah, one of our favorite categories, the Academy. Why the hell does horror keep getting ignored? Why I mean, think I think it, it really is the same reason they ignore comedy. It's seen as not as important for whatever reason. The weird thing to me is that, like, yeah, sure, don't give it Best Picture, don't whatever, except for, you know, Silence of the Lambs here and there. But it's just kind of bizarre to me that they can't even really get love in the, like, below-the-line categories. I mean, think of how many iconic makeup creations there are in horror or iconic horror scores. And for the most part, they're not really recognized. I, I don't really... Uh, I can't really reconcile that besides the fact that just overall they're not viewed with the same prestige as usual Academy films. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's sad that that is the case because many are, uh, quote, you know, academy level films. Uh, you mentioned Science of the Lambs. Uh, we also have a uh, Hereditary from the other year. Uh, mm-hmm. We have uh, we have uh, we we have, uh, you know, Psycho and you know, we, we have. Uh, you know, all, I mean, all I mean, just we, we could just rat we could rattle them off. Uh, Alien, 
uh, you know, the original Halloween. I mean, well, maybe, well, oh, well, maybe that one's borderline. But I mean, we have these, you know, th- there, you know, there's there is quality in them. Oh, there's a, hu- a huge, uh, you know, they have a huge influence. Uh, they're a big uh, box office draw. And I think, you know, it's because that there that many of the Academy members are just trained to think, you know, that, you know, it plays, you know, horror plays to the, you know, lowest common denominator and it's too accessible. It doesn't require much of the viewer. And so for that, we're going to hold it against it. But I just say to help the Academy. I mean, I, I, I ask my students uh, often uh, to uh, name me some uh, some of the best picture winners, and of course it, it, they can't because most of them are not that memorable. They maybe they'll name the like the recent like a recent one, or they'll like say Saving Private Ryan or just like something else. It's just like well, duh. I mean that's like you're grasping at low hanging fruit. Everybody knows that. It, it that didn't require any effort on your part to to pull that title out, and but yet those movies don't become part of the zeitgeist at all. But these horror films do. So uh, some of those influential directors uh, we've ever had, you know, Craven, Carpenter, uh, Hitchcock, Kubrick. I mean, they, uh, Craven, they, they don't, they didn't walk home with little golden men. And yet they are the names that people know. They are a brand. Uh, these films have gone on to be so ingrained in our, and in our psyche that I have students who have never seen a nightmare on Elm street. However, they know who Freddy is. They've never seen Friday the 13th. They know who Jason is. They've never seen Scream. They know who Ghostface is. And so, like, that you're, you, that makes you a winner. I don't give a flying fuck if you go home with that golden man. If your film can't stand the test of time, then, uh, then I, I'm not going to, you know, give it, you know, I'm not going to spend any more time thinking about whether or not the cab- the Academy needs to accept it. Because the fact of the matter is, these films have won, uh, they've won the marathon, and they need no justification or validation from a bunch of stuck-up, pretentious pricks. And Saving Private Ryan oh. didn't even win, so it just you know, speaks to oh. the unmemorability oh. of well, uh, the actual winners. <laughs> you know who did win? Green Book. Miss Shakespeare in Love. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's... Um... It's just plain and simple snobbishness. Um, just folks looking down upon genre filmmaking and um, seeing it as a lesser art form, that it's uh, somehow not intellectual in any way, when it absolutely is. Uh, there's way more going on in any horror movie than there is in any basic kitchen sink drama. And um, as Ryan said earlier, it's usually going to be way more truthful than a lot of those straightforward dramas as well. Um, it's also from a craft perspective, one of the hardest genres to execute well. Um, every element has to come together for a horror movie to be solid. I mean, you need, uh, cinematography, the editing, uh, costumes, makeup, everything needs to come together and work. I mean, I don't think there's any successful horror movie that only has one thing going for it. I mean, there's very seldom, um, so yeah, I think it's a it's an incredibly difficult movie style to pull off, and uh, it deserves way more respect than most um, elite industry people are willing to give it. I agree. Um, it makes me laugh. Do you guys remember ten years ago when the Academy's like, 
there's a genre that we don't really honor much. So here's a minute and a half long montage of all these horror movies we never nominated. Enjoy this. We'll see you <laughs> in another 10 years. And I just like, it makes me so upset because yeah, we've gotten horror over the years. Bad Seed, Misery, Black Swan, um, Silence of the Lambs, The Wolfman won for makeup 10 years ago. Women yeah, of Carrie were nominated. But Carrie, no. yeah. you know, like these rando movies and yeah it's great to have some you know some um representation there but it's just frustrating because then i think of like great performances of horror past you know why wasn't jamie lee curtis and pj souls nominated for lead and supporting for halloween you know why wasn't natalie mendoza nominated for supporting for the descent or bill mosley for the devil's rejects you know, Lily Taylor and Vera Farmiga for for uh, uh, The Conjuring and Heather Donahue for Blair Witch Project. Heather Donahue, thank you. Right. My because performance of the year that year. Yeah, that she would have been my winner that year. Like, it all just comes down to bias. And it's just, it's, it's really shitty because a lot of the people in the industry start off in this genre. This is their springboard. And then they just slap it in the face with their dick on the way out. Like, they're just like, bye. And there's no respect for it. And it just, it really sucks. And I wish that studios would push horror more. You know, I mean, I think it's still one of the greatest nominations the Academy ever gave was giving a uh, devil-worshipping song for Ave Santini for The Omen for Best Original Song. But that's still one of my favorite horror nominations ever. But do have we seen that since? No! Bullshit! Bullshit. All right, guys, this has been fun. Before we all go... We talked about what, what movie drew us in. I have to ask you your top three horror of all time. What would you say? Go around. Oh. Putting you guys on the spot. It, it's, it's, I kind of break them into, you know, categories because there's the obvious, like, obviously The Exorcist is like a 10 out of 10. But then again, something like Halloween 5, I think is <laughs> not just as good. I won't go that far, but it is amazing. So I have a weird combination of probably off the top of my head, uh, the original Halloween, uh, the Blair Witch Project, which I contend to this day is the scariest film I've ever seen in my life. And um, let's um, say Silence of the Lambs, which I don't really know if it's horror, but because it you know is recognized so much in the culture as horror, I'll, I'll throw it a bone. Oh, it's horror. There's no question. It is. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> oh. No, it oh. is. And ju- uh, just like somebody, I was, I was, it was a film that I was, uh, uh, someone's talking, I think it was Invisible Man. It was like horror thriller. I'm like, what the fuck? Why can't you just call it a horror film? Because it is. It, it, and then I got into a whole argument over, um, Oh no! No, it was it was uh, movie Maripod. I was I was I spoke with Madi yesterday, and so I, he was. Uh, we were talking about people calling it horror thriller, and I was just like, it's like no, it's like are you, it's like are we afraid to call it a horror film because then somehow it can't be like then somehow like its quality has is like is lesser so because we're gonna call it that so we're gonna call it horror thriller because it somehow transcends the genre which i absolutely despise and anybody says that that this genre doesn't need any uh, doesn't need to be transcended it's always been far more progressive than than everybody else and enlightening but anyway so uh so just that's my little rant that yes it it, uh you know science of the lambs 
is a horror film because the difference between a horror film and a thriller film is the intent of the writer slash director. If the intent is to horrify the audience, uh, it is a horror film. If the intent is merely to suspend and uh, suspense with tension, uh, then it is a thriller. So you have to uh, look at the intent of the director and clearly there are uh, several intents uh, within Science of the Lambs to horrify the audience. Uh, ergo, it is indeed a horror film. Well, with that said, your three <laughs> favorite horror movies. <laughs> I, I uh, that's why that's why my class is always full. I think my my students absolutely uh, love uh, my my little rants uh, that I get on. And so uh, I just love sharing with them, you know, uh, my, my love of the genre, why they should love it, too. Um, it's, 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 it's so hard to, to narrow it down to three. Um, but I'd say uh, of the three, in no particular order, uh, would be Psycho, uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I often would say science of the lambs but since we've already we've already talked about we've already mentioned that one then i'll follow it up with uh, which would probably be, you know three or four which would be west craven's scream i uh you know craven and hitchcock are you know very much the directors uh that i most admire and i love how both uh hitchcock and craven you know reinvented the genre and Craven even more so than Hitchcock because Craven reinvented the genre three different times uh, with Last House on the Left, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and then a New Nightmare, uh, then New Nightmare slash Scream. And so he reinvented it three different times and you know, Hitchcock gave us the modern horror film. And so I love how these men, you know, just uh, were pioneers and they, and they reinvented it for their audiences at the time. Uh, so, uh, so the, they're often going to be in, in top lists of mine. I'm going to go with, uh, three just personal horror films, uh, for me. Uh, The Silence of the Lambs is my favorite movie of all time. So I'm going to put that one in there. I think, um, it could be used in any film class to teach any lesson. It's a masterfully crafted film, uh, by Jonathan Demme. And I think it's just about as perfect as a film can get. And then, uh, Scream, uh, for First horror movie I ever saw changed my life. Um, have to include it there. And for some reason, the movie that disturbed me the most as a child was *The Cell* with uh, Jennifer Lopez. Ooh. Oh, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing that when I was like, I don't know, ten or eleven, and it like fucked with me so much in a way that no other film could ever do when I was a kid. So um, I'm gonna throw *The Cell* in there uh, to round out my top three. *The Cell* is such a good pick. I that was like never not playing on TNT when I was a kid and I absolutely caught like little snippets of it just like you did and it really freaked me out and it's also a horror movie that was nominated for an Oscar mm -hmm. so there you go oh. I would have to say my top three uh Black Christmas 74 is my favorite Christmas movie one of my favorite horror movies of all time um the horror film that really stuck with me the most I've only ever been able to watch it once because it's just so fucked up is Salo or 120 Days of Sodom, um, which I don't know if you get, but by the quietness, I'm guessing you guys have never seen. Um, okay, it's fucked up. Real types of fucked up. Yeah, it's and nice. Then, <laughs> and then, I honestly have to say The Descent. I think it's one of the most beautifully crafted horror films I've ever watched. Oh, it's, it's excellent. Excellent pick there. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, this has been fun. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Something. Oh, go ahead. No, what's up? What's up? <laughs> no, I was gonna say, you know, it has. This this has been this has been a blast. Uh, uh, thank you so much for finding the opportunity for us all to share. Yes. Yes. And um, going around the in a circle, Cody. Where can people find you? All right, I'm all over the internet, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, at CodyMonster91, and you can listen to my horror movie podcast. We're called Halloweeners. You can find us on every podcast platform, and we're on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. We're taking a little hiatus now just because of, you know, various uh, quarantine-y uh, recording abilities or lack thereof, but we'll be back for sure, so definitely keep an eye out. Yeah, your listeners can follow me on Twitter at RLTerry1, and you can uh, follow my blog at rltterryrealview.com and just uh, follow me on on the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts that I get to make guest appearances on on a regular basis. And I uh, love sitting down with so many wonderful content creators out there and getting to talk with them, uh, uh, mostly about horror, but then uh, occasionally I get to talk about uh, other uh, other types of films as well. And so, uh, so there's lots of places to uh, to find uh, find me uh, in uh, written form and in audio form. Uh, so again, that's RL Terry one on Twitter mostly, and I'm on other places as well, but not nearly as active. And you can find BJ Colangelo at BJ Colangelo on Twitter, and you can catch out or catch her new movie that is coming to VOD called Powerbomb. Um, I don't know when it's coming out. Just check it out though when it does. And then, obviously, for uh, Brandon and I, you can find us on Academy Queens. And then, Brandon, do you want to plug your own um, Twitter? Uh, sure. Uh, my personal Twitter is just um, at Brandon Stanwick, uh, just the name. And then the Academy Queens Twitter is at Academy underscore Queens. And then, I don't know, y'all can just find me in a phone book. So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Side note, Halloween Kills is amazing. The script is on fucking point. And it is way better than the 2018 version. So I cannot wait for you guys to see this if we ever survive that long. FYI, it's amazing. <laughs> Good to know. Yes. Well, gentlemen, on the count of three, we're all going to say a big old scary-ass goodbye. Ready? One, two, three. Bye! Bye. Bye.